0: father, Tim Kosecki is the president of the Jesuit Conference in the USA and Canada. He spoke with us about how Ignatius Loyola and the Jesuits impacted the world of missions as well as his own personal story of faith. So Tim, how did you become part of Jesuits? I grew up in a very Catholic family. My father, of Polish descent,
1: but a U.S. citizen, my mother from Italy, and I studied at a Jesuit university. And it's there that I first met Jesuits. But at the age of 19, in my second year of university, I was invited to make the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, which had a deep impact on me. And then when I visited the Jesuit novitiate, where Jesuits are formed, I, I said, I, I feel a call to this. And so I would say I started at the age of 21 by filling out an application and entering the order and 35 years later, I think it's been a good fit. <laughs> so when you told your friends that you were going to do this, what was the response? Well, I was, I was cautious. I told my trusted friends first and told them, don't tell a soul <laughs> because <laughs> I was afraid of the reaction I would get. But uh, some, some said, you know, I think it fits you. And uh, they said, well, it takes, what, a decade to
0: form a Jesuit? By the time you're ordained a priest, you'll know. Yeah, it takes a, di- a decade to say to form a Jesuit. Don't take this the wrong way, but what takes so long? <laughs> well, some say we're slow. <laughs> I like to say we take a lot of time. So there's two
1: years of novitiate, which is really separating yourself from, from the world that, as you knew it, and seeing if you can fit into to religious life. Uh, after two years, then you take your vows and you live as a Jesuit. Um, a lot of study, so two to three years of philosophy. I studied mostly philosophy political theory. Teach for three years, which I did at the secondary school level. Then study theology, and that brings you to ten. You're ordained, and then there's studies in addition to that to, to, in a sense, prepare you for the the specific work you might be doing. So it can even take 15 years. So your your family, how was their response? Uh, my mother, my father was nodded. My mother said, "Not my choice, but if you're happy, we'll be happy." So uh, there wasn't uh, pressure by any means, but uh,
0: but acceptance, but but a cautious optimism, which was good. Most people go through a moment in their life where they think, "If I made the right choice? Did you, have you done that? I
1: think that those come later in life as I see the the, the weight of the crises in the church and, and everything that's happening in the world. I sometimes wonder, could I have done more <laughs> in, in another way of life? But I think there was a healthy naivete yeah.
0: early on, and there was just a... There was a goal out there, so I wanted to reach that goal. Yeah, you have a key leadership role within the Jesuits here in the United States. How does that leadership mantle sit for you? Well, I've grown into
1: it, so I had been a provincial in Chicago for six years, now in this position where I'm president of the Conference of Canada and the U.S. and I, know, I guess I get up, put on my pants one leg at a time and, and show up for work. So there are times when I'm with our superior general in Rome and I think, wow, am I really being entrusted with this? But
0: more often than not, it, it fits. I'm 56, it's probably the right time. <laughs> we want to explore Ignatius Loyola yes. or Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, give us his background as a young man. Ignatius Loyola grew up in the Basque region of
1: northern Spain. Uh, Loyola was uh, the family name, the crest, and it was a noble family. So as a nobleman, he had noble pursuits. He dressed very fine. He liked the company of women. He liked the games of chivalry. So I think he was typical of that generation. He also knew he had to fight. Uh, Military duty was expected of noblemen. And uh, it was a battle in Pamplona. I don't think he was a great soldier because he suffered a fairly bad wound. A cannonball went through a wall and hit him and fractured his leg. And that's what had brought an end to his military career. And that's really the cathartic moment in his life. So um, he heals from that injury, uh, but if, if you've ever seen pictures of uh, 16th century Europe, particularly Northern Spain, the attire, the legs were like leggings. They were very tight. No. Most men wouldn't wear those today, but they were very common then. And so the, the battle injury made his leg look disfigured. And he said, what woman would look at me with a leg like this? So he actually went to his doctors and said, break it and reset it so it looks good. There's with no with
0: no anesthesia you can't imagine
1: no, that can you now there's a there's a, an english author margaret Silph, who's written on ignatius and she says what? he's the only saint who's had cosmetic surgery who's had work done but um yeah he did that because he, yeah. he wanted to maintain his look and it was in that second rehabilitation he was bored and he asked for something to read and he read a book on the life of the saints and a book on the life of christ and and it's not like uh, he felt guilt it sparked his imagination he began to wonder wow what if I could be like this? What if I could be like one of these saints? And it was really the life of the imagination that brought him
0: to his conversion. As he went through his conversion he then went on a pilgrimage and that's such an interesting story isn't it? Yeah he did go on pilgrimage. He, he had a a hermit phase
1: before the pilgrimage, which is significant. I mean, he became from really a, a man of chivalry to a homeless man. So when you see homeless people on the street, imagine you go from like, dressing like a, a Wall Street banker to a homeless person, but that, that was his, uh, his way because he, he felt the conversion called him to something like that. So he went to a place called Manresa, uh, more in the Catalonia area of Spain. And he spent f- over 30 days in a cave you know, begging for food and water. And it's there that he had this mystical experience called his spiritual exercises. And probably the, one of the greatest things he's written are these spiritual exercises. And it was from there
0: that he went on his first pilgrimage. Uh, after the pilgrimage, uh, there was a sense of a, a deeper learning, wasn't there? There was looking for a, an intellectual life. Yes, well, he, he wanted then to go the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and he went, but
1: he was naive. He thought he had this profound conversion. He was going to go to Jerusalem and convert all Muslims. And the Franciscans said, they kind of put their arm around him and they said, go back to Europe. Almost <laughs> as if to say, you're not ready for prime time. And so after that, he, he came to the realization he had to learn more. Yeah. Where did he do that? Well, he really wasn't well schooled. He couldn't go right to university because he, he, he was more into the life of chivalry. So he had to learn Latin because you really couldn't go to university without Latin. So there he was, you know, a, a young man, 20s, 30s, sitting with grade school children learning his Latin conjugations. And the children laughed at him. So, you know, again, he felt, felt a bit of a fool. But he started uh, in, in Spain. Uh, and once he felt he had enough Latin to succeed in a university, he
0: went to the University of Paris. So interesting that the hermit life, um, the pilgrimage, the learning Latin with children is an it's all interesting formation around humility, isn't it? That's that's uh, humility is, I think,
1: the hallmark of St. Ignatius's conversion. He knew that he, he couldn't be grand or great. He had to be humble if he was going to inspire anyone to follow
0: him. He he ends up in Paris, he's studying with many other young men. What's, what's the genesis of, of these guys forming together in a company?
1: Well, he had enough about him that intrigued people. You know, why they, they knew it's, they would have known the family name or, or known that Loyola was a reputable family. Uh, and I think the most significant friendship he formed was Francis Xavier. And the castle of Xavier is another beautiful place in Northern Spain. And Xavier was also headstrong and proud but I think he was intrigued by Ignatius. There was something about him, there was, a, there was something about his character, his charisma, that, that, that uh, attracted him. And so they began a, a very real friendship.
0: And how many gathered together in this group? They, they,
1: they gathered over time. There were about nine first companions. So some of the earliest companions were Ignatius Loyola, Francis Xavier the Frenchman Peter Faber. Faber was actually a priest, so they had already an ordained priest among their myths. Another Spaniard, Diego Lainez. So uh, these were some of the the first group of nine who, who came together and realized
0: that maybe there was something more than a fraternity or a friendship here. So they, they form a company. They have to get this company Registered, let's say. What do they do? It well, took them a long time. So when you look at how, t- how much time it takes to
1: start up a company, from, <laughs> from the entrepreneurial stage to filing articles of incorporation, took a few years, a number of years. So first they decided to take religious vows, and they did that in Paris. They went to uh, Hill Montmartre. So they went up there the Chapel of Saint Denis and there on uh, August 15th they took their first vows. And I think Ignatius had his comeuppance because he really wanted to go back to the Holy Land. I think there was a part of him that wanted to say to the Franciscans, I'm ready now. <laughs> and so the port to Jerusalem was Venice, so they went to Venice. Uh, but a number of factors, civil infractions, etc., prevented their journey. So they were on the streets of Venice for a year. And something significant happened. Ignatius said, we're not just gonna sit here and wait. Let's go to the hospitals, let's go to the poor neighborhoods, and let's minister to people. So in a sense, ministry found them despite what they were looking for.
0: So as the Jesuits developed, what were some of the principles that they placed, put in place that make them unique? So they were founded in 1540. The
1: company got started in, in 1540, and they had trouble getting started because this was a time when the church didn't want any new religious orders. Now, to add a little bit of local color, the pope was Paul III. Paul III had four children. Uh, St. Ignatius Loyola befriended the pope's daughter and she helped to say to her father, we think that this is a good idea. But Paul III was a good holy man. It just was a different era. It was a different era in the church. And uh, Ignatius said, look, what makes us different is we'll go anywhere in the world where you need us. And so what he had to do, he had to set up a discipline. How do you train people to be able to leave their culture, leave their family, their home, their familiarity, and thrive in another place. So that was the type of
0: discipline he had to instill in his followers. He wrote down his spiritual disciplines from his own experience. How did he make that part of Jesuit life? So uh,
1: his spiritual, as he calls them, his spiritual exercises are in the form of a retreat which every Jesuit makes. And, And the hallmark of the retreat is that the retreatant can be taught by God, that God can speak to you and that you can use that to help save souls. So that was the key he wanted them to know, to pray in such a way that God is speaking to you. You don't offer prayers to God and then go to the church to get all your direction. No, let God move through you. So that was the other big thing for a missionary. Again, if you're if you're going to another part of the world that doesn't know Jesus Christ, where are you going to find
0: your strength? It has to be in that discipline of prayer. Is that still part of it? Did you do that? Did you do the, that time away by yourself?
1: Yes, uh, I did a 30-day retreat. Every Jesuit does it twice in his life. his First year as a novice, and then decades later when he's preparing for his final vows. So it's a very privileged time. It's not 30 full days, there's three break days in between. And it's, I don't know if you've ever seen the Hollywood film, A Quiet Place. It's not like if you make a sound, the <laughs> evil spirit will snatch you. It's uh, it's it's uh, uh, turning out all the distractions of the world, all the
0: conversations. So what would it look like for you when you were on that? What happened?
1: Well, uh, the, the, the first time I did it, uh, I think I came with a a real sense of pride. I'm gonna have the best 30 day retreat. And it's not uncommon, there's someone who directs you, that the director says, okay, let's take you off the table. <laughs> <laughs> and lessens actually the, the prayer periods and the work you do to say, if you have one moment today where God breaks through your own pride, that might be good. Wow,
0: and you look
1: back on that as a time of joy? Yeah, I think so, I think so. Um, And I did it with others. There were 10 in my novicia class, so that's the other thing, you're not doing it alone. And not all stay,
0: Um, many have gone on and gotten married, but but at least we started out together. One of the other keys about the the Jesuits was this idea of being ready to go, and the story of Francis Xavier is interesting Then in that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Francis Xavier is more famous than St. Ignatius Loyola. As a matter of fact, Francis Xavier fast-tracked Ignatius' canonization, <laughs> so Ignatius, even though he founded the order, ran on uh, Francis' coattails. So there was only a few of them. Uh, they were in a neighborhood in Rome, and there was another Spaniard, uh, Bobadilla, who was supposed to go to the east, which would have been India. Bobadilla got sick, and so the two good friends decided, no, I think, Xavier should go, and I suppose the rest is history. But, you know, Xavier boarded a boat with his, his black uh, cassock. Uh, he had his Bible, his prayer books, uh, some provisions, uh, a crucifix. That was it. And it was a group of them that would have gone, and it would have been a long journey by sea uh, to India because then there was no Suez Canal. There was <laughs> the, the rites of passage we have now. And there he shows up uh, on the eastern banks of the Indian shore and
0: brings the gospel of Jesus Christ. Intriguingly, we're, we're sort of used to today, or we have perhaps the last couple of hundred years of, of people from churches, Catholic or others, going out in mission. But in that time in the 16th century, it wasn't quite so popular. No, there was a lot of colonialization that was happening. So,
1: I mean, remember the missionary activity had two waves: One, the missionaries who accompanied the colonizers, and then there were those who went just to evangelize. And Xavier would have been to evangelize. He knew the routes of trade, though. Remember, the Spanish and the Portuguese had many routes of trade with India. That's in part how they could have even gone there. So it was almost part of the economy, but instead of bartering with goods, they brought faith.
0: He went from India to Japan. Uh, interesting incursion into Japan.
1: Yes, uh, and, and Japan uh, came with some complexities. There were moments of very warm embrace, and there was a, it, it was a fertile soil, and then it would be met with suspicion. Uh, what is this foreign, outside uh, religion? So I think what's interesting about going from India to Japan and then his desire to go to China was he didn't go set up a church and live there to be comfortable and die. And it's so uniquely Jesuit. You go, when you feel your work there is done, you move on. So the, the idea is to go, let the locals form a church, now move on.
0: Yeah. Matteo Ricci going into to, to China, like Francis Xavier, that was a unique...
1: Uh, Yeah, Matteo Ricci did what Xavier couldn't do. Xavier died (laughs) with China in sight. So Matteo Ricci said, I'm going to go. And he went, he started in Macau in the south of China. And he's the first Jesuit who not only made it into mainland China, but went to the Forbidden City. But they did barter in a way. So how did he get into the Forbidden City? He and another German Jesuit, Adam Schaal, brought all their knowledge of uh, astrophysics, they wouldn't have called it that then, they probably called it cosmology, but their knowledge of astrophysics to predict the 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 calendar, the seasons, etc. And if you could give the emperor a sense of how the crops were going to be, and he could proclaim that, and if he was right, that gave him great power. So there was a there was a, there was a form of barter. And and in, likewise, Matteo Ricci said, "Now let me tell you about our God and our faith."
0: One of the things that Ricci did was was take on uh, Chinese custom, Chinese clothes, uh, clothing, Chinese appearance. That's very unique at that time, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and Xavier, too, they they came with the black robes, and then they realized, you know, <laughs> we, we look alien. We look foreign. So they allowed the people to dress them. And, yeah, so the pictures of, of Matteo Ricci dressed in the splendor of what one would have worn in the Forbidden City in the court of the emperor because he knew that was part of enculturation. You have to embrace a culture as well as share your own. Well, now, that wasn't... Um, universally popular, though, was it? No. Uh, one of the things Ritchie got into trouble for is something called the Chinese rights controversy. So the way the mass was celebrated. So, for example, they wouldn't have had grape wine; they would have had rice wine. Things, all sorts of things like that. To say, can can Catholicism be practiced differently in China than it is in Europe? And you know, again, in an era of great conformity and regimented approach, no. And so, yes, uh, the missionaries
0: always come with tension and conflict. Some monastic movements seem to be retreating from the world to, to kind of care for yourself, almost. The Jesuits, that whole idea of one foot raised, outward looking, uh, is, that comes right out of the character of Ignatius Loyola. Is that, is that the case?
1: Yeah, I, I think Ignatius had a, a, a line, a maxim, that every Jesuit knows, the world is good. So many monasteries were built on a hill or in a valley to escape the world. Not that they were bad. It's like, we're gonna go away from the world to pray for the world. Ignatius said, no, go live in the world and that everything in the world can be used for good. So that's why Jesuits gravitate toward technology, everything, because they're not evil uh, in and of themselves. They can lead to evil, but they can also lead to good. So he loved the
0: world. What about education? Because again, Jesuits are well known for uh, uh, centuries of of education. How did that begin? Yeah, some people think that Ignatius
1: Loyola had this vision of opening all these universities. uh, And then here in the United States, we're getting ready for a big basketball tournament in which many Jesuit schools compete. So they wondered, did Ignatius have March Madness as a tournament we have in mind? No, he didn't. Ignatius never envisioned schools when he started, but he needed an education at the University of Paris. So he said, my Uh, Jesuits. Jesuits need a good education. And what he did was he said, I want to found good schools and then let's bring in, he called them externs, let's bring people into the schools. And I guess the rest is history. So the schools were to educate Jesuits, they opened the doors to all, and that's what began this massive global educational network.
0: Lots of organizations talk about mission drift. In other words, they started over here (laughs) and (laughs) then they end up over here. How do the Jesuits, how do you and your role in the Jesuits Maintain a focus on that. Well, it's,
1: just if Xavier and Richie had conflicts, we have conflicts today. And mission drift is something we have to face uh, every day. Uh, Ignatius had a love for poor souls. We always have to ask ourselves are we only educating the wealthy? We have a line of our schools becoming gated communities. That's uh, one area where we, we have to question ourselves. Secondly, in, in the work of universities and higher education, academic freedom is very important. But if a professor asserts the freedom to deny the existence of God, how is that equal the mission of a Jesuit college or university? Yep. And so these are areas of great tension, balancing academic freedom with uh, the mission and charism of the Jesuit order.
0: This series is focused on to the ends of the earth and because of the work of you know, Francis Xavier and all those who followed him. We have geographically got to the ends of the earth from a faith perspective, but what does that phrase mean for you today, to the ends of the earth? Well, sometimes we believe that the true
1: missionary activity is, is not to find people who've never heard of Christ, but to go to the places where people have known and forgotten or have no use uh, for the gospel. And often that's even in our own neighborhoods or back in our own communities. So uh, uh, the current Pope, Pope Francis, is a Jesuit, and he talks about going to the margins or going to the peripheries. Sometimes those are within, within our own societies, within our own
0: families. Yeah. And finally, again, the, the, the name of the series is Jesus the Game Changer. If I said, what is Jesus the Game Changer as a phrase, what does that mean for you? Well, Jesus changed the course of history, he changed time.
1: I mean, uh, there, there is no greater game changer in the world, uh, but how he did it is what I love. Even if you don't believe in God, the story of Jesus Christ can change your life. Uh, that We believe him to be God, uh, the son of God, but just his own witness on this earth can change your life. And when I, I think of, I've had the opportunity to travel much of the world and see the face of Jesus in so many cultures, in so many people, and in the hearts of people to see how alive that faith is to say, that cannot be of human means. That can only come from God.